0: Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Good Grief. My name is Dr. Christine Malone, and in this podcast, we talk about trauma, tragedy, and survival. In each episode, I will interview someone that has gone through grief in some way, and we will discuss the impact it has had on their life. By sharing these stories, we hope that others won't feel alone should they be going through similar situations. Enjoy. Hello, listeners. In this podcast, I am not uh, interviewing anyone. I'm going to tell the story of what happened to me when I lost my fiance out of when I was very, very young. So when I was 19 years old, I met a man, his name was Vince. Vince was eight years older than me. And I thought he was my soulmate, the man of my dreams. He was a bodybuilder and he was really into working out. Um, he would listen to military, uh, chants for some reason when he would work out. He also took, um, steroids as part of his workout routine, which made him, um, kind of paranoid and a bit aggressive at times and so on. So at one point in time, uh, he's told me he was going to move to New York. We lived in Seattle or I lived in Seattle and he lived in close to Seattle at the time. Uh, he wanted to move to New York, which is where his family lived because he wanted to be closer to them. So I thought, okay, it's it's done, we're done, we're, it's over. Um, I made him a mixtape, which back in those days was a uh, cassette tape recording of songs that were um, uh, somehow uh, meaningful. In this case, they were all broke my heart kind of songs. Um, and I gave him that. And I don't know if it was that tape But for some reason, he invited me to move with him to New York. So I packed up my things, which that wasn't very much. I had a a Jeep at the time and my dog. And we drove across the country with Vince's truck. We towed my Jeep, um, had my dog with me. Um, We drove all the way from Seattle to New York in a little less than three days, which is pretty fast. Uh, We only stopped, I think, just to eat and get um, rest uh here and there in in a hotel but for the most part we drove constantly so when we got to new york we went to his family's home now vince's family was um they were italian catholic uh they were connected which means they were um, uh, attached to the mob the mafia Um, vince's father had several businesses that he owned in the bronx mostly related to cars, um, mechanics, bodywork, that sort of thing. Um, the family wasn't really excited about me um, for a couple of reasons. First of all, I was Irish or I am Irish, and um, that entire family was Italian. Um, Vince was divorced and had a daughter with his ex-wife. Um, they lived outside the state of, of New York. And the fact that Vince and I moved in together when we were moved to New York um, without being married, was a problem for his family as well. Shortly after we got there, the Jeep that I had, which was a soft top Jeep, um, it wasn't practical. And therefore Vince sold the Jeep to one of his high school friends who wanted to use it on his property. Um, Prior to moving to New York, I had had a a roll cage installed in the Jeep because I used to take it off road. Uh, with my friends and my dog um, frequently and actually rolled the Jeep a couple times and the roll cage was um, supposed to keep the inhabitants inside from being injured in the event we would roll it. So the, or the, the Jeep was sold. Um, Vince at this time was struggling with some mental illness issues. Um, his <clears throat> ex-wife and their daughter uh, again lived outside the state and the ex-wife was um, pretty cruel when it came to allowing Vince to visit his daughter, and that affected him a lot um, over those years. So, um, at one point in time, when we were living in um, uh, a city called Yonkers, New York, um, Vince had went on a trip to visit his daughter and was denied um, the the visit by the ex-wife. So he came home and he was really depressed. I went to work that day and while I was gone, Vince swallowed a bottle full of of pain meds in the attempt to take his own life. He called me at work and told me what he'd done. I called um, 911 as well as his father, um, who both arrived at our apartment. Um, Vince was saved by the paramedics um, and did not die in that attempt. At the time, I was working as an assistant in a chiropractic office, and Vince was working as a mechanic in the Bronx in one of his father's um, numerous businesses. Um, At one point in time, we'd lived there for about a year and a half, and it was my birthday. And Vince knew I really missed my Jeep that we'd sold when we got to New York. So he bought it back from me, from his friend, and as part of that birthday purchase, he bought these beautiful rabbit skin seat covers for the two front seats in the Jeep. They were super soft and, um, really comfortable to sit on in driving the Jeep. So, uh, also during this time, and I think again, back to Vince being on, um, steroids and kind of some of his aggressiveness and, and, um, Uh, mental illness issues that i recognized years later he was also paranoid so he was convinced that at some point in time there would be some kind of government takeover and that the people would be left to fend for themselves so to that end he purchased and stockpiled a number of guns both handguns as well as as rifles um, and had those hidden in in a space in our apartment he also Uh, got uh, false passports for us, fake passports, because he was convinced that when the government took over, we would need to go underground and need to have new identities. So we had these fake passports and a stockpile of guns for when the government takeover um, would happen. So one night Vince was working and I was home. Um, Vince was always on time coming home from work. He was was never late. Um, He was driving the Jeep this this particular day and time um so he was late I poured myself a glass of wine and sat back and thought well you know he'll be home anytime you know it's not like him to be late but maybe something came up um this is in like 1987 so obviously before cell phones um so you couldn't just reach out see if you could find someone right away uh, about nine o'clock that night Vince's dad called me and told me that they'd received a phone call from a hospital. Um, Vince was in the hospital, he'd been in a car accident. So the parents came over to get me and we drove to the hospital to see Vince. He was in the intensive care unit um, when we got there. His head was bandaged as well as his left arm bandaged and the arm was actually in some kind of a a device that held it up um, a little bit rather than have it lie in the bed with him. So when we had a conversation with the doctors, it turned out that uh, Vince's car accident, uh, someone had, had um, moved to into his lane and Vince overcompensated. And in doing so, the Jeep, he lost control and he rolled the Jeep. Now, the Jeep did have lap belts, uh, but he wasn't wearing his. So when the Jeep rolled, um, he was inside and tossed around and actually his head was smashed up against the roll bar that was ironically installed to protect people in the event that the the jeep rolled. Uh, That head injury actually broke in his skull and he had um, visible brain tissue from the injury um, at the time they brought him to the hospital. His left arm was apparently broken in several places uh, because the doctors didn't know whether he was going to survive the head injury. They just wrapped the arm rather than try to do surgery and cast it so that was why the arm was wrapped and in that sling of sorts Um, several months before this happened Vince and I went to um, a funeral for one of his uncles I think it was and the uncle had been very sick before he died and his family placed him on life support systems. so Uh, He lived for at least a year comatose and on life support. And Vince, at this time, he was, what, 30, and I would have been 22. And we had a conversation that if either of us were ever in such a situation, we didn't want to be kept alive on life support. We wanted to just be allowed to die. So thinking that this might be a possibility, I went to Vince's dad, and I told him of that conversation. Um, Vince's dad was a very unemotional serious man I would describe him as a, as intimidating maybe even a little bit scary um, but when I told him that story his eyes filled with tears and he went to the doctors and told the doctors that he didn't want his son kept alive um, under extraordinary circumstances so the doctors made a note of that and he then had a do not resuscitate order on him so he lived like that in the hospital for about six days. He was from a very large family. So the family all came around to see him. Um, I remember one aunt in particular had to be removed from the ICU because she threw herself on on top of him on the bed and was begging God to take her instead of Vince. Um, it was all very um, dramatic and, and uh, unreal at the time. So after six days in the hospital, um, I was there uh, and I went in to visit him and I could only visit for a short period of time because he was in the ICU and visitors could only stay for, I think it was five or 10 minutes. But while I was in there for that that last visit, the broken arm, the left arm, I was sitting on that side of the bed and he flexed his arm um, while I was sitting there and I could feel it because I had my hand on his arm. And I said, I, uh, you're telling me something. I know that you're telling me something. Um, I'm here. I hear you. I, I, I know what you're saying. You want me to be strong. Um, and he flexed his arm three or four more times over the next few minutes. And I cried. And I thought, okay, he's, he's aware. He's in there somewhere, even though he can't, he can't talk to me. But he's telling me to be strong because he's going to recover. But it's going to take a while. And I should be strong um, because of that. So shortly after that, I was out of the room because again, couldn't stay long in the ICU. And I was out in this waiting area and I heard the call over the intercom that it was a code blue in the ICU. And I knew that it was Vince Um, and I was there alone. His family wasn't there at the time. And I saw everybody rushing down the hallways into the ICU and they were in there for a while before they came out. And one of the doctors came out to where I was sitting and told me that um, Vince had died. And I then sat there thinking, well, I probably should call his family, um, get them down here. I I believe it was the middle of the night. I I really don't remember um, exactly. It was cold and snowing outside. It was definitely a New York winter. It was the end of January 1987. Um, so because he was from a Catholic family, Vince's family did what's called a wake. And what that meant was he was in an open casket in a funeral home, um, because of his head injury, the funeral home placed a wig on his head. And I remember when I looked at him thinking how much he would hate the hairstyle, but, um, for some reason, that's what they did. So he was in there, um, And I believe it was five or six days of this wake of people coming and seeing him and paying their respects. And the family, uh, which they did include me in this, we sat there in chairs in this freezing cold room all day long each of those days to greet these guests who would come and pay their condolences. Um, There were so many flowers in that room and the smell was absolutely overwhelming. Um, And for years after that, the smell of flowers uh, actually made me physically ill. Um, I couldn't stand the smell. It was, it was not a pleasant thought at all. Um, at one point in time during this wake, one of Vince's relatives came up to me. And I have I've experienced this another times in my life when it comes to um, grief. People, they don't know what to say. And so sometimes they say really stupid things that are hurtful, but they don't mean to. Um, and this woman did just that. She came up to me and she said, you know, it's a really good thing that you're young because you'll be able to find another partner. And even in that moment, I remember thinking, Are you insane? <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not even thinking about another partner. But again, I know she said that because she thought it would be somewhat helpful. So I packed up my stuff. And I moved back to Seattle where I'm from and where I had family and where I felt like I would be most comfortable. Um, I had severe depression. I lost a lot of weight. Uh, My hair was falling out. I didn't sleep. I was drinking a lot of alcohol and really engaging in um, uh, risky behaviors, risky activities, because in looking back, I think I was uh, had I was probably suicidal, um, didn't really know what to do with myself um, and thought my life was pretty much over. Um, I was 22 years old at this point in time. So for years after that, I used to send flowers to the cemetery where Vince was on his birthday and have the cemetery staff take those flowers over to where he was buried. Uh, and about, I'm going to say about seven years after he died, Vince's dad died, and I was contacted and told that he died. and I don't know why, but for some reason I felt compelled to fly back uh, to go to that funeral. Um, so I did do that. That was the last time I had any contact with Vince's family for many years. Um, I reached out to one of the sisters, one of his older one of his younger sisters, and we corresponded, but eventually that that stopped as well. Um, Vincent had one friend out there in particular. He was a corrections officer. Um, And when Vince died, I had that stockpile of guns that were all in in Vince's name. Um, I asked the friend if he would be able to sell those or in some way dispose of them in some legal way, because I could not do so. And I didn't know what else to do. So uh, he did do that. And I was in contact with him for a few years. fact, I stayed with him and his wife when I went back for Vince's dad's funeral, um, since then. So, um, at the end of, of all of that, uh, once I got home and to Seattle and kind of got my life back on track, um, it was, it was difficult. It was very difficult. I think losing someone at such a young age, someone in a relationship at such a young age is, well, it's definitely life-changing, um, as I said, I was 22 years old and I, I wrote my first will and, um, advanced directives at 20, at 22 years old. And I have been a big advocate for people from that, that day on to take care of your, your, your final wishes. Um, cause you never know how old you're going to be when you go. I mean, we never promised the next day. And I always wanted my family, um, later when I had children to not be, uh, not have that, that, uncertainty of what to do what I wanted them to do uh, if I passed or in the event that I was in an accident and comatose as Vince was um, and as I said thankfully his father did did listen to me and, and take that into account so I remember thinking if Vince was in a coma and hooked up to machines that kept him alive and I was not married to him so I would have no say over the matter how guilty that would make me feel knowing because of our conversation that that was not what he wanted so in the year or so after I moved back, um, as I mentioned, I had severe depression. I found a, a therapist who didn't have any grief therapy um, experience. I didn't even realize I should look for someone who did. And I remember he had me take a rock that weighed about five pounds or so and put it in a backpack. And I used to go out hiking a lot because I like to be alone. I like to be in the in the in the open air outside. Um, with my thoughts. And he would have me carry that backpack around with the rock in the back. And the idea was that the rock was my burden, and that at some point in time, I would leave the rock somewhere out there in the woods, and that was symbolic for me, that I was able to move on, um, become a new person, and so on. Um also, something I noticed during that time was some changes I had in things that surprised me. So, For example, foods that I I used to like to eat, I no longer liked them and I changed the color of my hair and I started going by the name of Christine, whereas up until that point in my life, I'd been Chris. So I made those changes and I don't really know why, but that's all part of of that. I also lost quite a bit of my short-term memory, which I've since learned is um, part of the grieving process. And As an example, when I first got back to Seattle, I bought a car, I went shopping at a local mall. And when I came out of the mall, I forgot where i parked my car. So I was sitting on the steps outside of the mall and I was crying because I was so frustrated and scared. And a security guard came up to me and he said, "Um, what's going on? I said, I can't find my car, I don't know where I parked my car. And he said, well, what kind of car do you drive? And I said, I don't know. I couldn't remember. So looking back, I'm kind of surprised he did call for some kind of services to take me away. But um, I don't remember how that day ended, but I do know that it was a struggle and it was hard to learn such a hard life lesson at such a very young age. Um, I became very jaded for a while. I didn't make plans beyond the next day because I didn't know if the next day was 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 to be given to me or not um, it was it was difficult and I, I didn't have a supportive family um, so when I look back on it I, I think to myself wow I, I should have sought out uh, some kind of grief counseling in a group or with a single counselor I don't know because everything that I experienced was normal But at the time, I didn't know it was normal. I thought it was me losing my mind um, and not surviving this. So my takeaway, and for anybody who might feel yourself to be in a space where you're just hopeless and you don't know what's going on and you've experienced something that's just life changing like that, um, is to please find some kind of a support uh, system, whatever that may be, or someone to talk to, someone that you can, can share your um, thoughts and feelings with so that you aren't all alone. So thank you for listening to my story, um, as well as all the podcasts that I am doing um, as part of this good grief. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Good Grief. To hear more about my personal story, please pick up a copy of the book, The Spider Killer a memoir of trauma, tragedy, and survival. You can find the book on Amazon and Kindle.